sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is one of the OGs of UK Jiu-Jitsu, Oliver Geddes. Oli was a big inspiration to me back when I started my Jiu-Jitsu journey as one of the most active UK competitors who was frequently meddling at some of the biggest tournaments in the world. It was great to have a chance to chat with him on this week's episode about training with Hodger Gracie, how he got into refereeing and some ideas he has about improving the rules of the sport as well as much more. I hope you all enjoy the chat. So here we go with Oliver Geddes. Hi Oli, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. When I first started jiu-jitsu, I had been training maybe a few months at the time, and you were probably one of the most well-known people in the UK scene. I remember there was a few interviews that you would see, a lot of competition footage. That was a long time ago. Jiu-jitsu wasn't very big. When I started, it was early 2011. I'd say you were probably still a brown belt at the time. How were you one of the most well-known full-time guys at a time when there wasn't really that many full-time jiu-jitsu guys, particularly in the UK? I may down talk myself a little bit here, but um, I was lucky enough to really be one of the few people who was able to train full time. I never had a great deal of athletic talent. I never did sport in school or anything like that. I was never great on that, but I was able to find an environment where I was able to train way more than anyone else. When I started at Rogers, there weren't even that many. There was less classes on Friday night. I forget the exact schedule, but it wasn't like the standard mega academy that you have now. And that was probably the only gym in the country at the time that was even able to support like it was like a full-on full-time facility and it still doesn't have what you'd call close to to full-time now there was a couple of morning classes some lunch times i was able to go full-time partly partly by being very lucky in terms of the situation partly by depriving myself of uh, um, a few of the other things people do in their 20s i basically went okay i'm doing this and i trained an awful lot and i just traveled and competed at every possible thing that i could and i ended up on the radar by just doing more than everyone else i was just there i was a fixture at competitions you know it was like okay there's a competition and i just went to them which was also a lot easier back then because there weren't that many competitions like in 2007 2008 there were like Five competitions in the UK and you knew what they were they were like every few months you're like okay we're doing this one and everyone went to those so we just a face that was at the whole thing one of the things I realized at the time there was probably yourself and Ryan Hall were the two people that I knew anyway that I'd heard about that were competing a lot and I remember hearing that you both had hundreds of matches in the space of a couple of years and that kind of for me was a big eye-opener that I needed to compete as much as I could what do you feel like competition gave you at the time and did it help you improve faster than other people at the gym who maybe didn't compete as much? I don't know if competing necessarily makes you get better by itself. I mean, I know it can. It can highlight weaknesses. When you come in with a game plan, you run into a guy who just completely shuts you down. And you go, OK, well, that was clear hole. Maybe no one at my gym competes that way or rolls that way. And this guy can clearly just stop me. What do we do about that? So that, that, that can push you forward a little bit. Honestly, I think... Like to begin with, I, I competed because, again, there weren't that many competitions and I was doing them. But mostly it was a case of I'm doing this full time. Why am I not putting myself out there? Why am I not doing these competitions? Why am I not putting myself on the scene? You know, if, if I'm going all in on this, you know, and I pop up twice a year, you know, for two major championships and, and you know, that's not really an adequate sort of opportunity to express everything that I've done or anything else like that. Like to begin with, um, like around purple when I was winning 
a lot of things there was a lot of swagger about it it was just i'm going to go places and i'm, I'm going to i'm going to do this and I, I like at the very high level i never thought i was like great like i'd go and win world championships because you, you know those guys you see the guys and you're like okay that guy is is there you know but i knew i was confident enough that at least around europe that i'd go to a competition and unless i made a mistake i'd, I'd be able to medal or possibly win because again at that time i was a bit ahead of the curve just because i was training more than more than most people and then when i sort of got into the more sort of realistic semi-professional level where everyone's really 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 solid and you can't be like yeah of course i train more i'll give it a go sort of thing it became a case of the more you know you can have good days and you can have bad days but the more you compete the more chance you have to have good days the stuff like the euros and things like the big competitions where a ton of people come from all over the UK, just as an example, and then half of them get absolutely wrecked. You know, and then people train train for the entire year, and then you get you get taken out in the first round by a dude from Brazil who is just a monster, and then goes on to win the whole thing without breaking a sweat or whatever. And sometimes it's your day, and you beat guys who are much better than you. For me, it was just a case of you can come to all these things, but you can do all the prep work, and you can still lose. You know, and and so if you know if you do if you do twenty competitions and you have ten bad days, it doesn't matter about those ten bad days because you've got the ten good days to look at. You can go, okay, here are the you know, well, okay, I went to the Europeans and I got wrecked, but then I went to the Pan Ams and I did, did, I, did I got a bronze medal because whatever because it, it came together on that day. But that's sport, I guess. At the same time, jujitsu, it's a funny kind of sport because it's fighting. I suppose at the end of the day, it's so much more personal than something like football. Like Man U could lose to West Ham or West Brom or let's say Brighton or someone, but no one's really going to be thinking that Brighton are better than Man U overall, but it can happen on the day. But for some reason, Jiu-Jitsu, you have a bad day, you lose to someone who maybe seven times out of 10 you would beat, but then everyone thinks that you're just worse than them and that's it, full stop. But I know yourself with competition back in the day, you were well known for the half guard. I was wondering how did you develop into such a specialist from kind of early in your career when there was probably less resources around as well for that kind of stuff? Basically, uh, it's sort of the standard story for most half guard people, which is that you kind of suck at everything. This is a very self-deprecating podcast thing we're doing here. But uh, <laughs> but basically, you suck at everything because you haven't learned how to – you don't have the grips to play spider guard. You can't quite get the hang of doing closed guard. And, you know, you, you, you can't find a way to get on top because being inside the guard sucks because they can submit you and you can't submit them and life is miserable. Standard sort of white belt stuff. Uh, and then you fall into half guard because it's the one thing that you can do where you, you have – a, set, a semblance of control over the person you know you can't control her body but you're like, this leg this leg right here this leg belongs to me i'm going to hold on to this leg with both of my legs both of my arms like a koala and then i will have time to think about what i'm doing and then i can start developing everything from there so that was sort of it starts off as just a safe point you know it's like okay i can hang around here and i'm probably not going to get destroyed you know immediately um and this was this is like six months in or something like that you know you when you when no one has things together barring guys who previously are like super athletes and whatever and then honestly but one of the only good resources available around that time apart from like all the gracie tapes and whatever which you couldn't really you know it cost a lot of money and whatever else and you didn't really have access to them was um i bought eddie bravo's mastering the rubber guard in, in all of jiu-jitsu there was a bunch of okay here's a bunch of moves it was a book that had a system and it went okay you're going to do this and they're going to do this and now obviously that's that's normal you know structured i mean to be fair there's still a lot of instructions now that are just stuff but there's a much bigger idea of building systems together but mastering the rubber guard was like the first book where it went okay this is what we want to do this is the control here's every possible thing and there was the rubber guard and there was the half guard section of it which is the lockdown game and everything else and 
again, as as you as anyone who's trained jiu-jitsu for any length of time, there's always a guy in the gym who is the lockdown guy who everyone hates, you know, and you're just sitting there going, look, I just want to have a light roll. And can you please leave my ankle alone? Can you stop squeezing my leg? You know, whatever, whatever. Um, and I was that guy at, at white belt and blue belt, um, whatever, because again, you need that sense of time to think about what you're doing and the control and whatever. And the lockdown is great for that. It annoys people. And then you get everything built off that. You could learn how to do jujitsu, which would probably be a good plan. But instead of learning how to do jujitsu, I learned how to learn a very small subset of jujitsu and just focus down on that path. And again, you can you can have a great close guard. If you can't get to close guard, it's irrelevant. You can always get to half guard unless the person is just infinitely better than you, at which point you've lost anyway. So it doesn't really matter. It's probably an easy position to practice during the training as well, because I know back in the day, there was probably more just normal roles, like less specific training and stuff. But I'm sure for the half guard you wind up there every role one way or another so you're almost doing your specific training in every round probably from the half guard did you ever feel like being regarded as a half guard guy held you back because i know myself it annoys me sometimes when people say oh the leg lock guy because it's not even the best part of my game i have a big like wide open game obviously that's a strong point that people are also weak enough at defending sometimes but I know I love in competition when I get a rear naked choke or a guillotine or something else just to mix it up so everyone doesn't think that I'm a half guard guy or anything. I, th I think it's quite nice to have something that you're known for. Half guard particularly, I think a lot of people who are in a sort of similar situation to how I outlined my history, a lot of people relate to that a little bit. You get, you know, guys who are just like, I haven't quite got the whole hack of jujitsu, but I like, I like the half guard and I saw you doing it and I can relate and associate with that. It doesn't seem out of reach for a lot of people because again it doesn't show the kind of athleticism and stuff that you know that you can't you can, you can look at it and go okay i kind of see how that happened and how it worked and so it's quite nice to have that and so when people like randomly run into you go okay you're the half guard guy kind of weird to be boiled down to that but at the same time a few days back i was digging through old videos and the reality is that if you look at a fight of mine from like purple belt and now you probably couldn't tell which was which, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I mean, there's moments of other stuff, but like I was looking back because I thought it's like when, you, when you're trying to track your progression over time, you think things come in at different times, you know, like, you know, okay, a brown butt is when I started doing this. So, but then you look back and you see yourself still doing stuff earlier than that so like i had um yeah i dug up an old purple belt fight and i just like oh i thought i invented that oh i thought i started doing that at brown belt but it was still a you know a purple belt thing um and again the moves from purple belt and from the last world masters you know wherever that is nine ten years apart it's basically the same stuff so I, I have kind of been down that rabbit hole a little bit too much although i'm trying to work on that so you've spent most of your career training with Hodger gracie as well i was wondering how that experience was you've been there since early days in his gym did you get much special attention from him along the way and how has he kind of helped shape your jiu-jitsu he was there he was always you know one of the instructors was there but there was always a secondary day-to-day -day instructor who took probably a slightly higher share of the classes i mean again it wasn't like a bunch of guys always used to think it was strange like they believed that he lived in brazil a lot of guys were just 100 percent sure roger lives in brazil right and he's, he's his name's on the academy and he's never there these were guys like living in london who just didn't didn't get that at all um but you know generally there was a secondary instructor who was always phenomenally good because roger has a good range of guys to ask you know you can ask a guy he knew back in the day and he'll still be he'll be a diamond in the rough hidden gem no one knows about 
count who's an absolute monster or whatever. A lot of secondary instructors who secondary sounds harsh, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, additional instructors, you know, who who were running the day-to-day classes, and each of them helped shape things as well. Early days, it was Felipe Souza who's now um, doing other things, but he was, you know, one of one of the best guys. I think he was world bronze medalist, and he was, you know, holding down things. And he was an absolute monster, and he ran most of the day-to-day stuff early on. Jude Samuel took over Siri Gustavo Siri, who's again literally the definition of a you know a hidden gem, like just just most people don't know who he is then he turns to competition and just annihilates people roger himself he wasn't a huge fan of my game really the half guard thing you know because he just didn't feel it was mechanically the best way of doing things and he's right i suspect in the sense that you know it's there are lots of things you can do with it but it doesn't scale to higher levels as well as, as some other things it can but you have to be real real good i either just about when i got my brown bow i think or just before I got it, at some point Roger said to me, "Okay, but you're going to have to stop doing this half guard stuff now, you know, because you know it, it works fine up to purple, but browning up it's really going to be a problem." And he wasn't wrong. Uh, he wasn't wrong at all. I also always found it kind of strange that, like, when he's forced into half guard where he doesn't want to be, where he establishes he hates it, it, it it's it's not where you want to play your game. He still sweeps the best guys in the world from a position that he hates when he says don't be there, like um. Yeah, I think it was a fight with Shanji like many years ago, which he ended up ended up losing. He pulled half guard and just swept Shanji, you know, and you're like, I mean, it's clearly possible at that level. Yeah, I mean, one thing you were saying earlier about there not being that much specific training, that was actually something that Roger was very, very big on. Not so much by the guard positions, but he just said basically the secret to getting good at jiu-jitsu is just to do a ton of specific training. So again, that's mount training, side control training, half guard, closed close guard just trying to open it stops when the guard opens and he said that that was his philosophy was that's a big part of of the whole thing and so it was a lot of that early on um and just trying to focus through you know the varying aspects rather than just rolling the whole time and again because that that pigeonholes you again because if you're just rolling you're going to which is good but you're going to spend 90 percent in the position you're comfortable with so having those change-ups and you know being exposed outside of what you want to be is is always a good way to you know force change upon you i didn't train with him as much um at least early on even if i was a more serious competitor than some just mostly because i wasn't really big enough is the reality like again i like my early competition i fought lightweight most of the time at that point training with 100 kilo roger and trying to force him into your half guard game doesn't get a lot back in terms of um you know uh success and uh leverage and everything else from there so um he he preferred generally like, although he give guidance and things he, he prefer to train with guys who maybe less traditionally technical but could at least compete with him on a physical level combined with the technique behind it if he messes up and the guy is as strong as him there's a chance that something happens there's a transition there's a, re- there's a reversal you fall off if he messes up on me he has to move his foot a foot and then he just stays there that's what it means when things have gone horribly wrong you know so there wasn't uh, as much direct training there but again most of the other guys uh, the other instructors were a bit closer to my size again jude um was middleweight ish uh, felipe was a middleweight ish so that was more training in that kind of environment uh, again roger would guide the classes and things like that but there wasn't as much of you know okay if i can do it on roger i can do it on anyone that would be true but um i couldn't do it on roger so that's sort of where it goes and what do you feel like made him different than other people because when i watch some of his matches or watch him roll i kind of get the feeling that even if i did something perfect it wouldn't work on him and he could just make something up and it would work on me or anyone else for that matter there's just something almost invisible about why he's so good i don't know if it's his 
positioning, his posture or something. I was I was wondering what your take on it is. Like, what makes him different? It is strange to try and pick up on it. Um, and like, also because again, because of his size and things like that, and because he's not hyper athletic in the traditional way, it, there's little moments when you go, okay, this guy is really, really good, but you can't see it all the time. And Roger, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Okay, he's on top of people destroying them. You don't have moments where you just go, okay, that was amazing. It just, it's just the other, he makes it look like the other person is terrible, not that he is amazing. And there's, there's a few other moments where, I mean, like little things like just how he transitions in side control. Like just when you see someone twist their hips and move, there's a little moment where you look at it and go, that is a guy who really knows what he's doing. And I mean, obviously that's redundant given who he is, but there's these little things where you see that and you just go, that looked better than it should and i don't i still don't entirely know why honestly that's that there is still an aspect of that you know i mean again there is a lot of things that people have got off roger that have transformed made them a lot better but again it it seems to be for a lot of the guys who train with there a long time everyone takes something different from it everyone has like one thing where you know roger said do this and it became a thing that they just did but everyone took different aspects of it and i think the interesting thing about roger and his team and everything else at nearly every gym when you have a very high level instructor there's always one like hardcore kino student who is exactly like their instructor you know who just who just just goes well okay well you're really good at this so i'm just going to copy everything you do and ask questions about everything you do and i'm going to become mini me or whatever you know but there was never a mini me roger because it's you can't do exact like you can get things from it but you can't replicate everything because there's so many factors there's his body type you know there's just the, the, the experience and pressure you can't get so everyone you know who trained with him regularly would find one thing that roger does and he'd just sort of go by the way you should do it this way and it would never be like a forced teaching moment it would just be like an offhand comment or a response to a question that would make it click for that person towards the end of sort of the gracie baja alliance rivalry you know fabio gagel just came in and just taught a class just randomly you know and you're like okay well that's happening you know um because roger never really got super political about the whole thing so it was always you know when you are roger you know you can come in from a different team not a big deal well i'm, I'm not going to go and train with gracie baja i'm going to go train with roger and that's different you know so that was kind of sort of the vibe Kind of interesting as well that his career exploded when he actually came to England and most people would have thought that he had less training than that. So it kind of goes to show that you don't need a massive, massive team to make it to the top of the sport. Yeah, I mean, it's always been an incredible thing with that, really, was he trained hard. But again, you know, like his access, like his his high level training in the UK basically consisted of training with Braulio, Victor and Legato a couple of times a week. And that was basically sort of it, you know, and then fun roles in the class and whatever, and then his own fitness conditioning. But when it came to big comps, he'd just disappear off and he'd just do six weeks, you know, of just Gracie Baja milling and just and just and just put it all together. But that was, you know, pr- that was for the big comps, for, for Worlds, whatever. He, he didn't just roll out of Roger Gracie London after going twice a week and go, I'm off to go win the Worlds or whatever. Yeah, but basically like his high level training partners, you know, his primary guy really was Braulio because Legato was a bit further north and then Legato came to teach at the gym as well later on which was also another big influence but this is down the line when i'm like a brown belt plus braulio victor um and also they, they work quite nicely with roger because they were trickier you know and 
one of the interesting things about his his training with them was that they were very they'd do something that they'd developed that, that was sneaky but worked really really well and it would always work on him and then he'd just go okay we're going to go back then we're going to do it again and we're going to do it again you know until he found a way out and sometimes it wouldn't look like a, a, tr- a, a tricky thing it would just be okay this is how I apply my weight in this position so that when you go for it I can pancake you or whatever else but you know like if he got caught in something there was a big stage like when the earlier steamer lock stuff was kicking in where you know they don't mess around with that kind of stuff and so Roger would get caught a few times and stuff like that and then you know he'd be like okay we're gonna go back there we're gonna go back there and, and then start building you know the game it wasn't you know I, I need to figure out a way to deal with this because somebody else will and you know Braulio and Victor were very big innovators at the time and so having access to that kind of stuff beforehand is obviously you know a very useful you know attribute that's very interesting actually you can kind of see now when you look at Braulio and Victor's games that it could have been a big influence it's like you have to have the highest level tricks ever to make them be able to work on Hodger and how was the experience then getting your black belt from him was that a big moment for you going through all the belts with him it was fast relatively speaking I mean it was like six years three months or something like that but again you know at my peak I was training 10 or 11 times a week and and whatever and competing and I think mostly it was because I sort of I jumped through purple very quickly because uh, I won the Euros twice back to back move on to brown belt and so that that cuts out that sometimes people hang around in purple for quite a long time because it's a very you know it depends what you're looking out of it and then you're at brown and then brown to black's kind of weird but uh yeah I mean to get to get your black belt from you know the guy who's acknowledged as the greatest ever is obviously you know uh, a huge thing and it was it was a big thing because I, I was again an academy fixture in the sense that you know I was there the whole time and so you know you have that moment of being graded and surrounded by people who you know you've seen you know and people just genuinely being you know super happy for you and it's this weird thing where like on the day I got it people were just coming and saying can I take a photo with you you know like my, these are my, my training partners I'm like I don't understand what makes this you know a thing you know like I understand it's a big deal it's just you know like it feels weird feeling like a celebrity in your own gym you know which is kind of kind of a weird thing yeah it was massive really just to have that thing uh i had my dad there as well that may give you the impression it may not have been a complete surprise uh if i invited my dad to come along so i went through brown relatively quickly i didn't win that much at brown but i was like well screw it we're gonna fight all the same people you know but then we'll be black belts and you know whatever so it's kind of that transition to understand what it is to work for 10 years towards something or you know whatever that's just you know a lot of people don't understand like imagine that compared i mean i know it's not full time for some people but you know it's what six years for a doctorate or whatever you're going at it and you know and it's a recognition of the work over that time so you know pretty much everyone gets there because it's just it's the end it's the top of the mountain the end of the road it's a moment that you just have and it sticks with you and you're just like well wow you know and then what now and then it gets into all the philosophy of you know the journey's just beginning and whatever else so i feel like it is more than full time for something else even because it's not just the three four or five hours you're training every day it's the the parties you're skipping at the weekend it's the healthy food you're always trying to eat it's the obsessing over it obsessing over sleep yeah i say healthy food now someone asked me before at a seminar um funny enough like we were doing a q a at the end and one of the guys goes uh oh any like uh nutrition advice you're in pretty good shape and the only thing I could say back was, you know, those digestives with the thin layer of caramel on top. He was like, yeah, those are my those are my absolute weakness. Those are probably 20, 20 percent of my daily calories. So I wouldn't be getting any nutritional advice for me. But as well, what I wanted to get to was the last few years, especially you've been one of the most well-known referees on the scene, refereeing IBJJF, professional shows like Polaris, refereeing all the UAE ones. And personally as well, 
my favorite referee because I don't know if you remembered actually, but you saved me from being DQ'd at a competition before. I didn't actually, I, I don't think I'd ever met you before, but I felt like I knew you because I knew who you were, do you know that kind of way? And I was in the middle of a match. It was one of my first black belt tournaments in the absolute semi-final. And I was down on points and I put this guy in the saddle. And this is just when the saddle was becoming popular, no gi, and the gi guys were very confused with it. So I put this guy in the saddle and the ref was like, DQ. And I just said, no. And the ref was like, no, you're, you're disqualified, like get up. And I was like, no. And I held the guy in the position and I started explaining to the ref and the other guy wasn't too happy about it, but he couldn't get out. I was just holding him in the saddle. I started explaining the rules and what you were allowed to do and what you weren't allowed to do. And then I could see the ref was confused and he was doubting whether he actually knew. And then I saw you walking by the sideline and I was like, Ali, Ali, Ali called you over. And you cleared it all up. You are allowed to do that. The ref goes, come batch. And then I knee barred the other guy straight away. And I've never seen anyone so pissed in the middle of a competition. <laughs> but how did you get into the refereeing and all that? Because it's a very thankless job. I mean, for me, it was, it was initially, it was just a way to fund competing. In the end, it became something where it was how I subsidized the cost of the competitions I was going to. And how did you feel like when you go from refereeing straight into competing? Because I know myself, I did it maybe one time when I was a blue belt. It saved me 50 quid on the registration fee. And actually the first match I ever refereed, some young kid got choked unconscious with a rear naked choke, like belly down. And I was thinking like, please don't die. Like this is my responsibility. But he woke up very quick, thankfully enough. But I had not a great performance in the competition because I had been concentrating for hours refereeing before it. So I don't know how your experience was doing both in the same day kind of it depends on the competition because again a lot of the black belt divisions were quite early in the day they were like 11 and 12 or something like that so you'd go in you'd do like an hour and a half shift then you'd change then you'd fight and you'd get back on for the rest of the day so it wasn't that big a deal there was there was it was really a case when i knew i was fighting at four and i started refing at nine and then just absolutely destroyed myself uh personally i, I, I tend to be okay with it sometimes i find even refing it switches you on you know, because you, you you have to be in there. And so I'm so I'm walking around, like warming up my wrists whilst I'm refing and sort of getting a little bit of a sort of a pump going on sort of thing. Refereeing, I can kind of just get into a groove with it and it's not too bad. It's only when it becomes like a massive stress thing when, when you know, you make a call and it might not be right, then it sticks in your head after a while and, and, and things like that. I mean, the only hard one, it really is for the Euros and Worlds and stuff when I would be refing the first few days, but then I'd always be fighting on like the Saturday morning or whatever. So it was never like, you know, okay, I'd had three days of work, but often the head referee would be like, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know, you're fighting like an hour in, just focus and then we'll make you work more later on or whatever. So I can't think of an example where I, I, I underperformed because I was refing. I'm not going to go, oh, well, I would have won that if I hadn't been refing, whatever. Is there any crazy fights that you were refereeing that really like stick to mind that you always remember? Crazy fights or maybe crazy reactions? Because I've seen some people freak out when a call doesn't go their way as well. You must have taken some abuse over the years, I'd say. I've taken my share. I think, I mean, in terms of refereeing stories, it's not as exciting, but one of the ones that really sticks in my head, um, I've blanked on the names of both of them, but they were both uh, one. Uh, they were both very, very large heavyweight men, black belts. And basically they ended up, they were just going sort of 
head-to-head, just doing standard big man, head-to-head pushing around kind of stuff. And then both of them just started sort of blinking, like, intensely. They were sort of, like, rubbing their eyes and, and stuff from there. And so I stopped it. I said, are you, guys, are you guys guys okay? And basically what had happened was one of them had had, like, deep heat on the back of his neck. And so they basically they'd been collar tying up, and then it ended up in their head, and then the sweat began running down. And so we had to stop them action, like, and saline both of their sets of eyes because neither of them could see because they'd both been blinded by this accidental chemical warfare that had suddenly kicked out. But it was uh, it was kind of a weird one. Uh, that one sort of stuck. It wasn't anyone's fault. And I was like, are you guys all right? Because it was sort of got really uncomfortable to look at. And then, yeah, we washed their eyes out and that was that was OK. There's been other ones. I mean, there's like a guy got a massive hematoma on his head, like in a fight that it was like he was winning. But I was like, we're, we're going to have to stop this, stop this fight because you've literally got like a crater in your head where two guys are fighting. And then one guy basically arm drags, jumps on the other guy's back. And as the other guy is defending the hook, the guy who's standing's pants fall down. And so you're standing there. And so you're like, um, OK, so step one, we can't carry on because the pants are down. So we, we, we pick the pants up. And then the guy wants to restart on his back because it, it was stable. But his pants were down. And so you're like, OK, so and so you've got to put it in position that's kind, it's not unfair either side. You can't immediately escape the position, but you can't you know, put them in it either. And then it goes, then the guy escapes. And, you know, that's the hard thing as a ref because you ultimately decide whether the person's going to get that position or not. You know, you can put them in it and, and you can put them halfway in. But if, if they're just past the tipping point out, they will always get out at the high level because you're not putting them in the locked in position, you know. And so it, it's messy when you have that. And so it's always when you make a call like that and you go, oh, God, and the guy immediately escapes. You're like, please just win, win another way. So I don't feel it's my responsibility for, you know, like make it clean. Yeah, those are sort of the ones that immediately spring to mind. It seems like a tricky sport to referee because a lot of it is kind of up to your discretion. And then obviously you can't have the consistency that you can have in other sports, but that's just kind of the way it has to be. I mean, so my, my, my personal sort of preference, it's very hard to do, but what I'd quite like is some way... And I mean, I am, you know, one of the head refs for the AJP and stuff. We try to stick on board with the general rule set. What I think would help an awful lot is just the idea that when for those gray areas where, you know, people try to bend the rules and sometimes it works their way and sometimes it doesn't is just having like clearly declared combat phases which is kind of a weird way to describe it but like like with, with like a referee command so for example you have a situation where someone is you know going for a sweep defends a sweep stands up breaks the grip and pulls guard you can't do that until the referee declares you know you're back in the standing phase if you do you haven't waited for the command and you've, you've just conceded the sweep rather than those bits you know you've always seen it where a guy's he's, he's got his leg trapped he's got his leg trapped kicks it out and then immediately jumps guard and then sometimes you're like well you didn't get far enough away you didn't get your balance back and you give two points and the guy looks at you like what the hell you know but you're like you're trying to manipulate the rules like that and if you could just remove those areas and just as a referee you know sort of like declaring like scrums and rucks or something like that i was just thinking the exact same thing with the rucks because you clearly declare it and then everyone is aware that the rules are now changed or that we're in this kind of phase that's a very interesting idea actually that would be very good same as like now we have the um like the gesture for double guard pull with the checking the watch thing there that was like initially it was it wasn't in the rules it just became a habit that became part of the rules down the line but if, if you were to just have it as a command and just say double guard 
And then there isn't that uncertainty with that. Or again, you know, okay, so someone's going in for something and someone stands up with a single leg and then they're up standing for three seconds. Standing phase. And then you know that, again, both guys can take down. And having that sense of communication rather than, like, having a coach screaming stuff. Now, that's a massive change in how you do things. And I, I don't think that's something that's, you know, viable as we stand, you know, and uh, a lot of it. But something along those lines would at least mean that, you know, there wouldn't be those moments because the biggest problem I find with 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 athletes is when they expect something and something else happens. That's when the drama really kicks in. So if you just go, you may disagree with it, but if you're in a situation where you're like, well, okay, if you pull guard now, it will be two points against you. We've established that as the rules, and then you pull guard. Well, that's on you. You can be unhappy about where you've ended up, but you made the choice then to concede to concede the position or whatever. So yeah, standing phase, um, you know, guard passed, you know, a neutral phase, someone turtled okay neutral phase you can't complete the guard pass anymore and these things are all kind of communicated by the gestures of the referee and you can see it from the outside but as the fighters as, as the fighters you've got no idea exactly what's happening you know like if you're defending a guard pass you can't see whether he gave the advantage for the for the turtling you know whilst you're busy fighting for your life so something like that i feel like it's always a bad sign when you see someone a fighter does something and then their first reaction is they look at the referee with a confused look almost to say like please give me the points for that or did i get the points for that or i hope he didn't get the points for that so it's funny that it's just such a complicated sport and that's probably one of the things that holds it back a little bit from being a proper proper spectator sport because i know if i'm watching a new sport and it's impossible to figure out the rules it's very hard for me to get into it quickly you know what i mean my dad is well has for a long time been like a marketing director. That was his background, and he had a thing where he's like he turned up to a couple of my competitions when I was like a blue belt, and he had no idea what was going on. And he basically said, "What jujitsu needs is like at every competition a pamphlet, a pamphlet that explains what's going on. It's like a one-page little thing where you just hand it out to everyone. And go, this may look confusing, but." This is what the person is trying to do, and they'll probably get points for stuff like that. Now, obviously, that's not entirely practical, but you know that, that something like that. And so what would be some of your future goals now regarding maybe the refereeing, competition and coaching as well, because you're coaching a lot more these days. So I was wondering what your kind of future goals in all those areas are. Make myself better, compete more, um, make, you know, make the gym better and just keep progressing through through the refing and everything else. And also try and shed some of that uh, Corona weight. Thanks a million for coming on the show, Ali. Really interesting to hear about all the times refereeing and the competition and coming up through the UK scene with Hodger and everything. So thanks a million. Well, thank you very much for having me. Big thanks to Ali for coming on the show and also big thanks for helping me avoid being disqualified in that tournament as well. That was something that actually helped me qualify for the World Pro in my first year as a black belt. I wanted to give a quick thanks to everyone as well for all the support. This is our 10th episode now and I'm delighted to get some great positive feedback along the way so far. We'll be taking a mid-season break for the next few weeks, but make sure that you follow and subscribe to the podcast to avoid missing any episodes. We'll be back very soon and I have some really great, interesting guests lined up that are some big fan favorites and they're definitely not to be missed. So stay tuned for that. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, share it with your friends and like and follow to avoid missing any future episodes. Until the next one, Slánaga Spánacht. Thank you.